welcome in to episode 12, I believe at this point. Of 13, 13. Of Legal Fiction. Uh, I am your host, Joe, joined by my co-host, Spencer. You. Podcast where we do what everyone wants and dissect legal movies. Spencer, how was your past week? <sighs> Man, yeah. What can I say? It's at least football season. So that's a pleasant distraction. I have been enjoying getting even more out of shape than I already was sitting on my couch and, you know, drinking light beer and rooting for dudes like 10, 15 years younger than me. That's been fun. <laughs> yeah, that is like a nice like distraction, like basically from everything else. It's nice to finally have that back, but it's it also... Um, really sucks when your team is terrible so i have that at least yeah for college football yeah yeah well you know that's the risk you run when you cheer for big state tech okay <laughs> what you really ought to be doing is cheering for um you know big U. yeah gotta gotta support big U over big state tech any day so in the world of movies um have you seen any new movies that come out besides obviously the the banger that we had to watch for this one Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, not, I haven't seen any movies that have just come out. No, I've just been sort of dinking around on the backlog. Ended up watching a really strange, uh, but good uh, sort of suspense thriller just called The Visitor. Uh, it came out like seven years ago. Yeah. And so like the premise is, is the, uh, uh, you know, we're introduced to the family who's grieving their recent, they recently lost their son in Afghanistan or Iraq. It's unclear. And there's a knock on the door. And then it's a guy who portends to be friends with the recently dead, you know, son and brother. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, yes. Are you sure you're not talking about the guest? Oh, what did I call it? The visitor, the visitor <laughs> which is a different movie. And then you okay. started describing it. I was like, I've definitely seen that movie. Okay. The guest, the guest, my bad, my bad. But yeah, I'd never seen it before. I'd remember hearing about it when it came out. And that movie, the guest rules. I love it. Dude, it was really good. I was just sort of like, like the first 15 minutes was kind of touch and go. I'm like, what is this movie really going to be? And <laughs> then like once a, it got, it's almost like a horror movie. Like when it gets into it. Yeah. But it's also a comedy kind of, I, it's, uh, I don't know. It's playing with some tropes, yet not tongue in cheekily either it's it i don't know it's it was remarkably well made and gripping like you're in after like 15 minutes you're like okay no i'm in let's go yeah it's um i love that movie uh it stars also i'm probably gonna mispronounce her name but micah monroe which like i feel like in her early career she was only in movies that had just really good synth soundtrack so she was also <laughs> in um it follows, which was like I was I was watching the guest after I watched that, and I was like, "This is like, did the same person make the movie or make the music to this movie?" So it was awesome. I I really liked that movie. Speaking of really uh, awesome, beautiful movies, I did go see Candyman. Uh, oh fuck yeah! This past weekend, I liked Uh-oh. it, but in one of the first times ever that I have sat through a movie. I like it got done and I was like, that movie should have been longer. Like, oh, I hate that. Oh, I, I hate that shit. 
Okay. Like, like there was like, it's only an hour and a half. So when I saw that, when I went in, I was like, oh, hell yeah. I love it when movies are like, no, 90 minutes, we're going to get you like this story done. Because I hate when a movie is like, this is going to be two hours and like 15 minutes. And I'm like, you could definitely cut time off this. But with this movie, I was like, it, it there's, because like you get to like 20 or 15 minutes left in the movie and you realize like, oh, we're, we've just done all like set up and we're going to barrel to the end right now. Like it at breakneck speeds out of nowhere, it goes to the end. I think what happened, and this is just speculation is there was three different co-writers on the script. So there's like, I think there's just that syndrome of too many writers where there's a lot of cool ideas and uh, a lot of cool concepts that I'm like, it just didn't get to fully flesh out because of how short it got cut down. But that being said, it's a beautiful movie. The kills and like the shots in it are awesome. Um, also, if you're one of the losers that is saying like Candyman is now gone woke, did you ever watch the original movie? Like, just shut up. Well, yeah, I mean, woke from. Okay, yeah, yeah. I uh... saw a couple of those takes online. And I was just like, you're an idiot. Uh, and it it obviously does have a social message, but so did the original Candyman. And yeah, it's just uh, we weren't primed to hear it as well back then. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but it does. I think it does a lot of the social messages as well. And it's it is scary. And it's not like a jump scare scary. There is some of that, but it's just like an overall feeling of like dread and suspense scary, which is the better way to do it, in my opinion. Right on. Right on. Uh, I did also watch, um, going back to the original jump scares that I grew up with, I watched this new movie, Malignant. Have you heard of that on HBO Max? I saw it. They were teasing it for me. And I was just like, God, like, I honestly, I was bookmarking that for like a month from now when we get into scary season. So it's, it's by James Wan, which for those of you who don't know, he did like saw insidious, the conjuring, all mm-hmm. that stuff. So he's, he's a horror guy, but he also has um, done some bigger franchises. He did one of the fast and the furious movies and he did Aquaman too, <laughs> which I really love that like he got the bag and then he came back and made this and was like, I'm going to go. Cause this movie's batshit crazy. Like he's like, I'm not just going to do like another run of the mill. I'm going to take my bag that I got and I'm going to just going to do a fun, insane movie uh, without ruining anything. It's good. It's not as good as Candyman, I would say, but it is insane and it has really good twists and turns and really cool shots. He has like really cool, like just like weird camera setups and shots but at the same time uh expect a lot of jump scares because it comes from the guy who made all the movies that have a ton of jump scares in them okay okay not for those with heart conditions understood i'll uh i guess i'll just uh have to wait for my levels to come down before viewing uh right on right on the uh i one thing i did see it doesn't quite count as a movie though it was like a you know, three minute long trailer. The new Matrix looks good. Like it, it I, looks promising. Like good, good. Like, uh, like they even tease self awareness to wait. So is this a reboot or is it a sequel? Like what is it? They tee that up right. They don't run from it. They like clearly put it into what are they going to do with this? It's awesome. And what I love is the. I mean, just, and I'm not, I saw someone make this point online. It's by no means an original take, but what I love is that the color palette of this movie looks very vivid and vibrant, like very, mm-hmm. it's a lot brighter. different from like the original where it was all like 
one sort of tone the whole yeah, time. Yeah, that's just that sort of gray metallic with cool like dark greens and purples and blacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was sort of the dominant uh, palette, if you will. This looks much more, you know, like I said, vibrant. Uh, yeah, and I, I wonder if that's like something that it's going for or if it is just a flavor of the times because when the original Matrix came out, it was like, what, not late 90s, oh, early 2000s? Yeah, 99, 2000. Um, and basically if you had an action movie that was like the tone that you shot it in was like a green tone if it was well, a scary movie it was like a blue tone well uh, after after the but matrix, i that's think what the matrix did. was the first one that like set that for yeah them. yeah and, which, uh, which is cool like yeah, it's literally yeah. rebelling against itself on this so the one thing uh, I, I do want to see if they acknowledge because i noticed in the trailer there's a lot of like uh continuations like obviously carrie ann moss is back all the other supporting characters are back. Even the children are now like the grown versions you can tell in the trailer. One person who obviously didn't show up, Morpheus. Uh, Mm -hmm. Are they going to acknowledge that canonically he is dead because of a defunct massive online multiplayer game? Ah, uh, see, I missed. I didn't have a good enough internet connection to get down on that shit back in the day, man. Uh, I just didn't. I was uh, like, canonically, he is dead. He died in that game. So, and he's not just, in the trailer. <laughs> like, are we gonna have a, a? I if we have a, a, like, if you remember from the last Star Wars, where they literally brought Emperor Palpatine back, and it was because they teased him in a Fortnite uh, promo. <laughs> if that's the situation we get in. This new okay. Matrix might not be the best, but I will hold my judgment. And I'm looking forward to some new brand of Mountain Dew that will come out in anticipation as well. Like the, <laughs> the, the Matrix Dew. New flavor of uh, game fuel. Yeah, or maybe, uh, I don't know, some stupid treat from Taco Bell that's Matrix themed. Like, I'm all for it. Let's go. I think, you know, we need more movie, uh, you know, cross merchandising. We really do. <laughs> All right. I, I, some people think it's crass and in poor taste. I'm like, no, I think it's about, I think that pendulum's about to swing back this way. I think we're about to have a whole new level of it because uh, honestly, I think if anything, the last few years of pop culture demonstrates that, yeah, we really don't have anything like profound or, you know, legitimate <laughs> or authentic anymore. So let's just uh, package it uh, and put it on the dollar menu and go from there. Speaking of, uh, what is pop culture now with Marvel movies? I have not gone to see Shang-Chi. I've heard it's actually pretty good, but apparently it might not release in China, which is a huge market for Marvel. Oh, it's just, apparently uh, you know. one of the actors, something surfaced, he said something disparaging about China. I think his family lived there and he like said something about how they had to get out and disparaged just living there. And because of that old comment, it might not release in China, which I think is like almost a quarter of their like quarter to a third of their like total like uh, box office take for some other movies. Well, which, you know, poor Disney. I was just going to say Marvel's really going to hurt after that. <laughs> uh, yeah, man, don't don't uh, poke the tiger. You know, <laughs> uh, speaking of other really great decisions, have you seen um the musical Dear Evan Hansen? Thankfully, no. <laughs> Not, neither have I, but I just wonder with this take, obviously we, we might've even discussed it earlier on the pod that the guy who was originally in the um, 
Broadway is going to be in the movie as okay. the main character. However, well, that came out some time ago, Joe. Yes, he's. I don't even know how old he is, but he's like, uh, he's like very much older than a high schooler. And now they're planning on using de aging technology to make him look like a high schooler, rather than just hiring someone who looks more like a high schooler. You know, or the other alternative point, just hire a bunch of uh, co-stars in their early 30s. You know, let's just do it up uh, like we used to do uh, when you're doing a teenage movie. Find people in their late 20s and early 30s and, uh, I don't know, throw some bronzer on them, maybe some glitter. I don't know. He he is 27. I just looked it up. But he, like, he looks like he's in his 30s, which, like, I'm not throwing shit on him. I look like shit. Like, I look like I'm well into my 30s. Yeah, you do. Yeah. (laughs) So, But, like, that's why I don't get picked to play someone in the high school that's it that, <laughs> that's it <laughs> uh, and then lastly just to end on a more somber note um had another big star uh leave us michael k williams i don't i haven't looked into like anything further details about his death but he passed away unfortunately far too young um mm-hmm. was a just a a star that I don't think had even really fully realized his potential at this point. Um, no. He had obviously been in the wire. He had been in community. He was in hunters. I want to say most recently yeah. on Amazon prime. And also, uh, yeah. And also a boardwalk empire. Yep. Yep. And he, like I said, I think he was known as a star, but he was going to be a lot bigger. So it's really sad to see for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh really unique talent too Mm -hmm. i mean he wasn't uh an every man's actor by any means i mean he was just too distinct looking and too distinct in his voice and his mannerisms but uh, i don't know like yeah everyone and rightfully so thinks of you know michael k williams they think omar from the wire which is you know one of the best singular roles in the history of you know well not even modern just television period for sure put that marker down but yeah, his small role uh, there for a season or two in Community was funny. Like, oh yeah, he, had he is very funny deli- too. Yeah, he was so good at using that. And like, and in the hand of very like self-referential and meta writers, it was very. I, I, oh, it, it like it like referenced back to the wire, but in like a very like just very well-intentioned way. Like it like really worked well. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's sad to see him go and if anything though it was uh comforting to see at least you know on social media and on online uh you know everyone kind of like saying their piece or sharing a story like you know celebrities and non-celebrities alike just talking about michael k williams and i was just god it just seemed like a really cool fucking dude <laughs> like, yeah. just as a human yeah it's like and you hear this a lot about like different actors like some of the people who play like the most like sadistic or like messed up and evil people on tv can actually be like the sweetest people in real life and i think that's what the michael k williams was because i saw a lot of stories of like people meeting him and like he went out of his way to make sure they like felt comfortable or like that he was excited to meet them and not just them meeting him like and it's Mm -hmm. just something you can see like that uh he took a lot of care to like understand you know what the role had given him and how much he really contributed to the wire. And he wasn't one of those stars who 
didn't want to talk about his old roles or mm-hmm. things like that. Which is refreshing. I mean, mm-hmm. him and William Zabka, you know, not afraid to talk about uh, their finest moments. Uh, <laughs> yeah, cut that one. <laughs> uh, so going into even more finer moments, the movie <sighs> that we have this week. This Christ. week, we are talking about the great polished turd that is yes. the bonfire of the vanities. Okay. Okay. Here we go. My name is Peter Fowler, the man of the moment, the toast of the town. <laughs> but it wasn't always this way. Let me tell you how it all began. In the 80s, making money and living well was all that mattered. And no one did it better than Sherman McCoy. Now, he was a master of the universe. Calm, sorry, collated. Let's not lose our composure over a few hundred million dollars. No one could resist him. Not his mistress. This could be the best sex we've had in a long time. Not even his dog. It's raining and he's not happy about it, Mr. McCoy. Here am I, Bill. I, on the other hand, was a reporter in need of a story. This is Peter Fallow, the has-been. Oh, champagne. In need of a spark. Which is exactly what I got. It's a body. It looks like it's an animal. No, no, no. I, I think is it's it dead. It's, it, it's a tire. It's a dead tire. I turned that spark into a flame. Hello, Peter. I think there's a hell of a story. We're investigating an automobile accident. Yeah, on television last night. Uh, we, my wife, we said, well, we have a. Good Lord, we have a Mercedes in this. Mr. McCoy, is there something you want to tell us? And the flame spread. Did you say Henry Lamb was an honor student? Good doesn't really apply at Rupert High. They're either cooperative or life-threatening. Nothing is going to come of that little newspaper article. Hey, Adam! There he is! Miss McCoy! Absolutely nothing. I'm going to jail. And suddenly, I was the guy who had everything. Hey, an opportunity knocks. Someone's got to answer the door. I want to see the truth come out and burn every one of them, and there's only one way to do that. What's that? Lie. Like, if I could take a not-so-intelligent 10th grader, you know, not stone <laughs> stupid, but just, like, like, slightly below average, and then okay, give him... Right. Okay, let's get... So, yes, you in high school. Uh, <clears throat> give you a bunch of cocaine. Oh. And then ask you to just uh, <clears throat> read the actual book, Bonfire of the Vanities, <laughs> and then just scribble out the plot that you think from it uh, into a screenplay. <laughs> It'd and be then, like if I read Animal Farm and then I was like, okay, let's just make a movie about animals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, let's make it sort of a yeah. Let's make it a Pixar thing. Like it's gonna be like Madagascar. I, yeah, if I read <laughs> Animal Farm and then made like Charlotte's Web type movie out of it. Oh, uh, that's what we need. That's what we need. We need Napoleon voiced by Chris Rock. Like that. <laughs> that, that needs to happen. God, this movie's a fucking mess, and it's I hope bad. we can make quick work of it here. Uh, yeah. So I won't bogged down with the details but some background stuff on it i will say so this was based on a book a very very popular book 
that only came out like a few years before the actual movie did. I think the movie came out in 1990. The book came out in 1987. So, I mean, it was a very quick to picture. Uh, the book is known as a very like it's regarded as a, not a classic, but a very like seminal book of the age. Tom Wolf, baby. It's Tom Wolf. It's, it's a sat- game. Yeah, it's a satire on New York in the 80s. It talks about the yuppie lifestyle, talks about the class divide, it talks about racism, but it does so in like a nuanced and satirical way. Mm-hmm. This movie does not. No. no. Uh, it also just, it makes some changes to characters that I can talk about more in my final thoughts that I was like, what? What were we thinking? And I haven't even mentioned yet, this movie, directed by Brian De Palma. De Palma, like top five modern directors. And, you know, you see that his name across the screen in the opening title shots. You're like, okay, let's go, Brian. Mm -hmm. And I think it was within three minutes that I'd lost all hope. Like, uh, yeah. All right, so diving right into the plot, uh, we first meet, Bruce Willis playing the journalist Peter Fallow. Um, he's a uh, a writer for the City Light, I believe is what it's called in the movie. And he looks like just a drunk. He hasn't really written that much anymore. Um, and I believe this was just coming off of when he had been in Die Hard. I might have my timelines wrong, but I think that's what it came off of. And even before Die Hard, he was known as a comedic. Actor, yeah, he did. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Moonlighting, you know, like he did uh, some bit comedy roles. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, okay, you know, I can see Bruce Willis in this because now I think we would just see Bruce Willis and be like, that's an action guy. But back then, different lens, and I think he, Bruce Willis, could probably still do comedy for sure. I, so we meet him, and he's going to be our narrator for the film because <laughs> he's the one writing the article on this. Just apparently, sh- sh- the, the book for that matter. Just a, that's true. He gets a book. Yeah. Um, just a, uh, what a shitty narrative. Or no, I mean, it's a common narrative device, but it's just used so poorly in this movie. Um, yes, it is. It's all it's used weird because like, I don't know. It's just like he's weirdly focused on and then not focused on where I kind of forget about him th- halfway through the movie. So it's but then we meet our next character, Sherman McCoy. Uh, played by Tom Hanks, who I'm not going to say is bad, but is probably one of the biggest miscasts of this movie. Not uh, the well, biggest, Tom, in my opinion, well, but... Tom wasn't... I think the casting is probably... If it was a competent screenplay and directed well, I think he'd have been great in it. Like, Because, you know, in the 80s, Tom Hanks was not a serious actor. He was a comedy guy. True, okay? true. And he played that pretty well. Uh it's just, what is he playing off of? Like everyone is just, every scene is just so ridiculous and frantic. Like it's, there's no, uh, there's no chill to any of these scenes. There just is no chill. Uh, it is the opposite of vibing. All right. It is just frenetic and frantic. And Sherman McCoy is cheating on his wife. Yep. With a woman named Maria Ruskin played by Melly. Melanie Griffith. Um, his wife is played by Kim Cattrall, who I think who, I think is another miscasting in this be- or misdirection awful. because I know she's a good actor. I know she can do well. Like I've I've seen movies that I love her in, and I just oh. was like the direction and the way they had her do this just doesn't work. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree, but I'm gonna I'm gonna push back and make a new rule here. We can't say someone is miscast in any of this movie <laughs> because the because because 
they don't know what they're doing. They don't uh, know true, what they true. want. They're, to they're, get, mis- like, they're misdirected and mis like misdirect. Yeah, like I think every character or sorry, every actor or actress in this movie is imagining the movie in a different way, uh, right. which is a problem. <laughs> that which, a director, if it's not clear from the screenplay, that a director should probably iron out. And but, I will say, there's a lot of notes that I found from this on the production of it. I think it was a total shit show i think there was even a book written about how much of it there shit was show. there was and i actually so. now want to read that fucking book <laughs> yeah. uh so sherman mccoy played by tom hanks he's a wall street trader of you know the 80s variety who is cheating on his wife with maria ruskin played by melanie griffith and uh he is driving back with her from picking her up at the airport he misses his exit so he has to drive through, is it Queens, I think, right? Yeah, he missed Manhattan, so they're in the Bronx. Or the Bronx, I'm sorry, the Bronx. Yeah. Uh, well, like it matters, all we need to know, it's black, I guess, and apparently and, a war zone. Yeah, she was like, this is a war zone. And I was just like, I, I really hate the set design here. I don't know. I maybe, And again, I wasn't in New York in the 80s, so I don't know what the Bronx was like. But I was like, this. it was like a cartoon like TV way of like showing like, the hood to me well that's how we showed yeah that's how new york depictions of new york were until the late 90s right like there was the fancy manhattan then everything else was scarer dome where roving bands of thugs would go around trying to you know steal your car sell your daughter drugs and then kidnap her but then like shoot her up with like you know heroin laced with lsd Uh uh-huh and then yeah i i I don't know. It's, it's just trash. And Melanie Griffin taking the baton. Uh, you know, look, there's a confrontation. They get lost and they get out. And there's the ramp back to Manhattan. See? Sherman, what's that? It's a body. It looks like. It's an animal. No, no, no. I think it, it, Is it's, it dead? it's a It's a wheel. That's all. It's a tire. It's a dead tire? Oh, calm down, Maria. It's just a big tire. What? What are you doing? Well, I can't drive around it, can I? Well, you're not going to move it. Yes, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Well, Sherman, be careful of your shoes. Yo, you need some help? 
No. No, thank you. Hi. What's the problem, man? Need some help or what? No, I, uh, I don't think so. I, no, thank you very much. Excuse me, I, I have to go. Where do you think you're going with the tire? Oh, this is yours. Oh, well, then you, you take it. blocking the road and Sherman gets out to roll it out of the way. Yeah, that's and, right. And some two guys come up to him and they make it Here's another big thing that I don't like about this movie right here. They make it almost abundantly clear in the movie that they're going to mug him. And it's a bit more ambiguous in the book. Yeah. Like here it's right on the nose like no, they're going to rob him. So like yeah. he's kind of justified. And in the book, it's more about like they immediately assume that these two black teenagers are going to rob them. Huh, it's almost like certain mediums don't necessarily always translate well to others. Certain things get lost in the in the rendering. Huh. Yes. Huh. Uh, and it's also just like it's like an I wrote down that this is like scored like an 80s Zemeckis movie where it's like it's very like everything is like fun and happy and i'm like but we're dealing with like real shit here like this isn't like a fairy tale or like a nice little like yarn like this is like yeah this isn't slapstick yeah exactly so uh and nothing against the he's great at what he does but then (laughs) so they're driving off um melanie Griffith gets into the driver's seat to get away and she backs up really quick hits one of the teenagers, but they don't really know that they hit him. They think they did, and she doesn't care. Uh, Sherman's like, we should turn around. No. They want to report it to it, report it to the police. Maria talks him out of it because she's like, everyone will know that you're cheating with me. 
Um, we also learn at that time that uh, she's living in an apartment that a friend of hers got through a rent control program and she's subletting it for like over twice what it's rented for, which is mm -hmm. illegal. And so they keep coming by to like check on her. They're also installing some sort of electrical work. We found out later that it's an illegal wiretap because they're Boom. spying on her to see. But, oh, there's your doze machina. All yeah. right. Uh, Spoiler. They, um, we then meet the Reverend, who's almost a secondary character, but he's, he's more involved in the novel. Um, mm -hmm. And he's trying to play up the story of this kid that he was a, a going on to college. He was an honor roll student and he was hit in the, he was hitting a freak hit and run accident by a and, white man in a Mercedes. Yeah, and he's basically trying to get it as donations to the church, basically, so that he can be, get rich off of it. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, we then go back to Peter Fallow, who I, at this point I was like, oh yeah, he's in this movie. And he was like, he's an alcoholic. He hasn't written anything. So Washed up, washed up, never was writer. You know? Yeah. So Albert Fox, who's this like lawyer, I don't know why brings him a story. He's just like, hey, there's this kid. Uh, that's that's common, actually. Attorneys okay. love uh, soliciting. Attorneys love soliciting, not soliciting, but feeding uh, stories to members of the media uh, for various purposes, uh, mainly because they want them to get some heat and some press on it. Sure. So, Which we find out that the reason that he wants them to write the story is not actually what Peter does, because find out later that the dad attorney just wanted to sue the hospital he didn't want this whole criminal case and all he didn't care about that but peter starts writing the story and it becomes a big rallying point that's how the uh, reverend gets involved they start calling on the da played by f murray abraham yeah who, yeah who, uncredited by the way he got in a contract dispute so he took his name off the film wow that is a ballsy move yeah f murray abraham and it's not wow. just like he's a cameo like he's a big part of the movie <laughs> so I was that's like, my that's my name that's me uh, I, he plays uh, it pretty well yeah uh, so he's God. the he's the da um and he basically sees this as an opportunity to get a bunch of uh favor for his re-election campaign so he has his assistant da kramer like throw the book at sherman mccoy once played they figure out that it is sherman mccoy played by eight late 80s early 90s sensation saul rubinick yeah. Uh, so uh, we also meet Judge Leonard White, played by Morgan Freeman, in this uh, in this movie, who's like a no nonsense judge. Um, it's he's probably my favorite part of the movie, um, just because it's Morgan Freeman, and because once I researched it, uh, it was based on a real judge who we can talk about more in our segment that we always do, who seemed like a pretty fucking cool guy, honestly, for the most part. Um, but he, uh, at least from what I, you know, researched, I might find out that this guy was terrible after my cursory search on Wikipedia. But uh, he, uh, so Weiss gets him to, with the police, they collab to finally find out that it is Sherman, basically because there's only a couple Mercedes apparently that match this exact description. They then find him, uh, Oh, there's also a cameo from Geraldo Rivera while yeah. the while the news is looking for him. This like I was like, 
why the and he shows up in the end of the movie too which i was like why is geraldo here again um this movie has a lot of like recognizable people just popping in and out like it's like everyone in showbiz wanted a piece of this action de palma you know making this movie out of a very very good and very you know like substantive work of literature being like all right we're in we're in and jesus everyone should be ashamed of themselves they uh they he gets a defense attorney who i lied morgan freeman's not my favorite part this defense attorney is my favorite part of the movie kevin dunn man kevin Uh, dunn he's a classic that guy oh classic that guy definitely a face that i was like i know that guy he went uh, on to play the father in every like movie yeah. involving teenagers in the in the 90s. Like he was yeah. just the hopeless, the kind of just sort of like doofy dad who was a little bit clueless, but at the same time, like would put his foot down about, I don't know, the, the, the phone bill. It was like him, Phil Hartman, and like Carrie Elwes, who was like the three rotations of like dorky dads, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but he becomes his defense attorney. Uh, he gets him to like, he's like, they're going to arrest you. We're going to go down um, and give a statement. Turns out it's actually like the arraignment and they're like yeah. doing the charges. And he's like, how do you plead? Which he says, I'm sorry, which I was like, could that potentially be like a guilty plea there? An admission? Yeah. Well, I, like, I mean, admitting it's, in court. I mean, it's certainly a potential, you could argue it as an admission. Uh, yeah. He didn't. Yeah. Uh, and also like there's a perp walk that wasn't supposed to happen. So all the media yeah. is out there. And- yeah. This defense attorney did not do his research or he really got fucked over in the negotiation. No, he got fucked. He got fucked over. There was not supposed to be any press. And he rolls up there. And he's just like, he promised me you know, that there wouldn't be any press. This is a hack but, like, job. How does he not know that it's like the arraignment and all that? Cause he doesn't say that, that. he says it's, and again, yeah. I think it's just shitty screenwriting yeah it just doesn't make any sense none of this makes sense in the realm of criminal procedure and i like like how does the entire like community know to be there before this guy does like uh, so fallow is um writing more on the case he actually meets sherman mccoy when uh tom hanks goes to leave the courthouse and he like ducks out of a side door I i didn't realize this apparently does Bruce Willis not realize that that's Sherman McCoy until like, cause then when they leave, he's like, wait, Sherman. And he runs out. I'm like, I thought you knew that that was Sherman McCoy, the whole subway ride home. Yeah. Wouldn't that? Yeah. (sighs) Unclear. But they, he is also dating the woman that we mentioned earlier. Uh, Bruce Willis's character is dating the woman who is subletting her apartment to Melanie Griffith, who's then renting it out at a high price she lets him know that there's secret recordings going on because they're wise to her game of subletting it out. So uh, he slips that information to Sherman. Uh, Sherman at this point has lost all of his allies. Uh, He's uh, been left by his wife. Uh, His dad does have a nice old tender scene where he just is like, I I love you and I want you to... um, you know, whatever you do, we'll support you. And he's just like, well, I'm going to lie. I'm just going to lie to get out of this. And yeah. there is and a he po- shoot, at one point, like in his meltdown. This was the scene. It was kind okay. of funny. I thought the, the shotgun scene, like it was just like, so like, I laughed at just how like absurdly it was written and not absurd. in like, this is funny, but it's sort of just like, 
what the fuck is going on? Like, I mean, what were they thinking this whole time? Like, what is I, I like? What? Okay, spoiler: he has a dinner party at a bad time because, like, he's you know just been arraigned and the world is after him. Yeah, and uh, it's full of your typical like caricatured Manhattan socialites, and he just loses it and grabs his shotgun uh, and starts blowing holes in the plaster and just like spinning around laughing you know maniacally and it's just like like everything is just it god man i there's not a word for it it's just so disjointed and dumb like it like all right like and this was the one spot where i was like tom hanks is good at this like mm -hmm. being that like unhinged like yuppie i was like he's good right here but this scene doesn't make sense what's happening right now and uh his friend uh, fuller i want to say his name is or something he's another that guy like his oh, yeah, friend yeah. at the firm um but uh oh, man they so he says i'm just gonna lie he's gonna use the tape but he's told his defense attorney and he's like you can't use that it's inadmissible because it's not your tape it's some other it's an illegal recording record. yeah it's illegally recorded yeah. you can't use it um which i think new york is probably a one-party state if i were to guess of like i'm guessing party. they're what there's like five states that are two parties. So yeah, uh, yeah I guess that. Yeah. Uh, so he then uh, just plays it in court when uh, Melanie Griffith is testifying that Sherman was actually driving. He just plays it like out of nowhere. And Melanie Griffith just, like passes out from like being contradicted. And yeah. And then the DA, uh, yeah, like Saul Rubinek, he, he jumps across the table and tackles him and tries to rest the rec- the recording out. And like, everyone's like, Oh, you know, like just uh record scratch for the whole, uh, and then uh, whatever. And, and so just, the judge is just like, come up here. He's like, is this your tape? And he's just like, yep. And he's like, okay. Uh, no further check. Um, that's admissible. And, uh, like I have to dismiss all the charges against him. Everyone gets in an uproar. Morgan Freeman makes a little speech about be decent. Like you're all basically vultures trying to profit off this. You dare call me racist. Well, I say unto you, What does it matter the color of a man's skin if witnesses perjure themselves? If a prosecutor enlists the perjurers? When a district attorney throws a man to the mob for political gain and men of the cloth, men of God, Take the prime cuts. Is that justice? I don't hear you. I'll tell you what justice is. Justice? is the law. And the law is man's feeble attempt 
to set down the principles of decency. Decency. And decency is not a deal. It isn't an angle or a contract or a hustle. Decency Decency is what your grandmother taught you. It's in your bones. Now you go home. Go home and be decent people. Be decent. Which, okay, fine, but my whole, one of my big problems with this movie is the change from the book is they make Sherman McCoy so much more sympathetic than he is in the Mm -hmm. book. Like, in the book, he's also an asshole. Like, you don't like him. And then in this book, and that's why I think in terms of casting Tom Hanks, it's really hard to hate Tom Hanks in a movie because he's such a awesome guy you know what i mean like it's hard to think of a movie where he's played an antagonist that you're just like i fucking hate that guy so uh i'll i can talk about more of my points on my feelings about the movie about the changes from the novel and how that really set it up to fail but he goes on a tirade um basically says that the reverend is race baiting and he's not actually out for his community to help them the da uh, has really just do this to appeal to the minorities and get reelected. He doesn't actually care about carrying out justice. Uh, and then he just says, I got to dismiss all charges. Uh, we then go to the end where Peter Fallow, Bruce Willis's character, has now written a book about the whole thing, and he's become famous. Um, and uh, there's a whole audience there, which is just everyone from the trial. Uh, yeah. Even Geraldo Rivera is there. We're here for you, buddy. We're proud yeah. of you. It's like the DAs are both there like, yeah, great book. I was like, what the fuck is going on? So, and that's the end of the movie right there. It, I, <laughs> okay. Uh, how do we want to do this? Uh, so let's go into, are there any legal points first off that you want to talk about? You know, uh, a couple subtle things that I thought were interesting. Um, you know, one of the best characters is Kevin Dunn, the def- criminal defense for sure. attorney for Tom Hanks' character. And when he brings him the re- when they get the recording, someone mails it to them, you know, unsolicited, be like, "Hey, you want to check this out?" And and well, I think it was uh, the reporter. Come and think of it, and they're going over it, and you know, it's Melanie Griffith on tape saying, like, well, I was the driver. It was my decision. Like, I'm the one at fault here. I'm the one who hit him. Like, so I get to make the call of whether to call the police, that kind of thing, which is, like, totally exonerating, right? And then Kevin Jones goes, yeah, it'd be great, but uh, it was illegally recorded. You didn't make it, did you? No? Well, that's a shame, because if you made it, we could enter that, and it'd be admissible. But right now, we can't. And, like, it was very subtle because like Tom Hanks was like, Oh, so that's all it takes. Okay. Well, 
I'm going to tell you now, it's my recording. And there we yeah. go. Boom. Done. Uh, I thought that was just an interesting, subtle thing that will, I, I mean, I wouldn't do anything like that, but I know that that kind of thing does happen uh, in certain levels or tiers of the legal arena. But uh, then when it gets to trial, and here's what bothers me, is Melanie Griffin, who, by the way, not only sucks in this movie, but hot take, <laughs> I just think she generally sucks. Uh, but we can just- She's can, had a lot of misses in her career. I, and I and like critically, she has been like, a lot of people have been like, she does not fit. And there are movies that she does fit, but like one, she's been criticized a lot for trying to do different accents in movies and she just doesn't commit to them. Ooh, buddy, and this one is- Ooh. Which I think is a little bit what happens here too. Uh, she doesn't I, really commit to it. It's um, like if Blanche Dubois was like huffing paint thinner the entire time. Uh, but yeah, and so like she's on the stand testifying against Tom Hanks about how he was driving and how he was interfered. And then Tom Hanks just plays the recording while she's speaking. It's very dramatic. And then, yeah, like as you pointed out, she faints and then there's this hullabaloo. But uh, I mean, just as a practical matter, hey, like, well, that's not evidence yet. You're just making noise. In fact, you'd probably get in trouble for interrupting testimony like that. But B, I mean, because you would have to introduce it. You would have to authenticate it, subject it to cross-examination. You have to share it. I mean, like all of these things. I mean, it was just like a very like, this is not a, like, this is a law movie, but it's not like a Grisham or a procedural where it's like, oh, no, no, no. We're going we're gonna to actually pay attention to some of the steps here. Just sort of like, but here's our Duse Machina right here. Like, just... The recording that I that I and then somehow we're supposed to be like, oh, Tom Hanks sold his soul. He lied and became a bad person to get out of the situation. Like he was already a shithead. Like he didn't care. Like no one cares. Uh, no one in that courtroom cares. Like no. the, the, one of the few things that movie did true to the book was Morgan Freeman's damn speech lecturing everyone about how this is all a racket. Everyone's got a hustle. You know what? The the pastor has an angle to make money by taking advantage of this misfortune to this kid. Uh, the media has an interest in selling stories and getting a name for themselves. The attorneys have a name for themselves to get either get paid or make a name for themselves and like make campaign fodder out of it. It's all one big hustle. And so like, that's it. But even then it was just like that little lecture just rings hollow in the movie. Cause it's just like, we're like, I don't know. Uh, Morgan Freeman was great, and it was weird seeing him look young. By the way, that that was a period. <laughs> I was just like, "Wait, is Morgan Freeman contractually allowed to look under the age of 40? It was just <laughs> weird to me. I was just like, "What the fuck, man?" Uh, that was actually almost uncanny for me. I was just like, "Oh God!" But uh, yeah, just the admissibility of the evidence. I mean, it would be admissible, especially for impeachment purposes, uh, if you could substantiate that. Yes, I recorded it. You know, but so, yeah, I mean, I don't really have anything else to say on the legal points because I don't think they're even really worth like going over a ton because of just the screenwriter didn't give any thought to it. The Uh, director didn't. And the thing is, I never think that you I rarely should say I think that you have to have like the legal points completely correct in a movie because that's going to make it boring, which I think is what the book does a lot better because the book still has the whole thing about the illegal wiretap and that's how she gets recorded but it it just makes so much better points than the movie and it's done in a way where and and i'll just talk about the differences here one sherman mccoy is 
He's not sympathetic. He is also a dickhead, more so than is in the movie. He's not made to be like the sympathetic like protagonist that you want to see succeed in the end. Uh, and just to spoil the book, I apologize. It ends a lot differently. Um, Fallow wins a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, Ruskin completely escapes any sort of prosecution and just remarries some other rich guy. Uh, McCoy's goes through the trial, but it ends in a hung jury split along racial lines of black and white voting. And they, uh, Kramer, the assistant DA, has to excuse himself because it's found out that he's sleeping with a former juror. And who amongst then, us? Who amongst and us? And then uh, it's also McCoy loses the civil trial against the family and owes them a ton of money. I think like uh, 12 million I have here, uh, which in, it results in all of his assets getting frozen. And then the biggest part that this movie just completely throws out the window that the book doesn't is the kid who gets hit by the car in the book uh, dies in the hospital. And it makes a point how like in all of this, everyone forgot about the kid, which the movie just forgets to do, I guess. Yeah. Yep. It makes the same mistake. Oh, wow. <laughs> Funny. Weird. Like, I was like, it's... that's the whole point is, and like, it kind of gets it with Morgan's point where he's like, you're all out for yourselves. You're all for a hustle. I was like, yes. And so why don't we like understand that like in this whole point, like someone is dead and they're like, just like, whatever, like, we're not going to put that in the movie. I'm like, but that's a big part of the book about how like all along this, there's this black teenager who got hit by a car and no one really gives a shit. So yeah. Um, I guess we can just go right in our next uh, topic on this. Um, we've already kind of given you some hints, but does this movie pass the bar for you, Spencer? And what is your score? Zero to hundred. No. Over fifty passes the bar. Under fifty does not. Fuck no. I'm gonna give this movie a twenty. Twenty. Okay. Yeah, twenty, and that's just based on glimmers of Tom Hanks being kind of young, Tom Hanks, and kind of fun at times. Uh, Kevin Dunn, Morgan Freeman. Those roles are like are, are they carry him a certain weight. Also, Saul Rubinek's in it. I love Saul Rubinek. Uh, like the castings. It's, I mean, it's funny just to see this many that guys come in there yeah. and for this movie to be so utterly shitty. Like, it's so like a 20. Like, and I feel like I'm being generous here. This was the most painful viewing experience I can remember. All right. God's Not Dead 2 rules compared to this movie. Okay. <laughs> it rules. I can't, yeah. God's Not Dead 2 is just like how like blazingly like shitty a movie is. And like this movie is like, how just like you can have the best people, like the best director, the best talent, some great source material, and it ends up being shit at the end of the day. I guess we should take comfort in that, Joe. You know, <laughs> yeah. like I, I, like we as, uh, you know, not only as like practitioners of the law, but just as human beings that, you know what, even when all it's, it's all set up to work well, or at least come out okay, Sometimes uh, just a combination of factors don't work out and uh, everything turns to shit. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I personally blame cocaine for this movie. Like, I just like, was just the it was 1990. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was like the end of the 80s in New York and it was a very like New York scene movie. So, like, yeah, everyone was packing. Yeah, it was like goddamn Animal House, I'm sure, behind the scenes. <laughs> Got to get that book. Yeah. So, uh, for my score, 
uh, I while I was watching it, I kept basically thinking, I'm like, this is about a 20 to a 25 is like what I was thinking, like as the movie was ending, I ended up giving it a 22 uh, just right there in the middle. So I was basically the same feelings as you. Uh, it just, it doesn't, it just, it doesn't work at the end of the day. And I think um, coming off our last episode where we talked about a great movie, Cape Fear, and one of the points that we talked about in that was Scorsese really shows how you do a remake right, how you like give uh, like credit where credit is due to the original while also doing mm-hmm. your own interpretation of it. This movie does the exact opposite where it shows how you take something that's already been done and just completely miss the point or completely mm-hmm. shit on it. Um, so, and I mean, we're not like reinventing the wheel here. This movie, in case people don't know, got tarnished when it came out. Uh, it was a box office flop. Uh, so we're not saying anything that hasn't been said, but they were right. It was not a good movie. What was the Rotten Tomatoes on this? Do you know? Uh, I do. I do. I do. I do. It, it was uh, go ahead. 13%. Oh, I have a 16. That's what I see. Oh, here. so Maybe it looks it got like a it's come positive up over reviews. the years. Yeah. Oh, God. There are some Bonfire of the Vanities truthers and apologists <laughs> coming out. Joe, that's it. The new mission of this podcast is to find those people and kill them. Parody, parody, but seriously. You know who gave this a uh, okay review? Well, not Roger Ebert. Two and a half out of four from Roger Ebert. Like a very just like, "Eh, it's not bad from Roger Ebert. And well, Roger was also really into cocaine at the time. (laughs) So like, I mean, you just had to be there, baby. You just had to know. Also, that's not slander or libel because he's dead as a doornail. So I'm legally free to say whatever I want about Roger Ebert. So, <laughs> uh, so let's go into our what kind of person would this character be in law school? Because I have a couple different production notes and questions that I want to ask you um, with the final thoughts on this movie. So quickly go through them. Um, we have Albert Fox, who we briefly talked about in the plot. He's the older attorney who brings the case to Peter Fallow to basically sue the hospital. Um, mm-hmm. uh, to me, he kind of just strikes me as an old school lawyer. He probably went to law school when it was 20 people in your class. And mm-hmm. he's, he's, a, he's played as an ambulance chaser, basically. Yeah. But he's just like an old school attorney who probably writes everything down and also is all about the finer things, too. So I think he was just a a guy who didn't have to pay that much for law school and, you know, doesn't he, really see how it's that hard. Yeah. Realized that, uh, you know, kind of person who re- who saw, well, that's what the law is, quote unquote, uh, and then just goes and uses it to do whatever he wants. And then with yeah. a smug smirk on his face and with no shame. And <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a plaintiff's attorney sometimes for you. So. So, and then the next one we have is Tom Killian who is played, uh, by Kevin Dunn, I believe is his name, right? That's what we said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kevin Dunn. Uh, he's the defense attorney. We do know that he went to Yale because um, he mentions that he went to Yale Law. And, and uh, he strikes me as a guy who's, he probably like didn't care that much about school. Um, he was just a naturally smart guy. But at the same time, um, we do see he's maybe not the best attorney because he wasn't aware of like the press and all these people going to be there at the <laughs> arraignment. 
So uh, who knows? Maybe he was just like a, a guy who failed his way upwards in law uh, I disagree. I think his nonchalance and his casual, uh, you know, even cavalier attitude is earned. Uh, we're, you know, we're taught to believe that, uh, you know, he's a veteran. He's one of the best in the city. So, you know, he's a Yaley uh, at a white shoe law firm doing criminal defense in Manhattan, doing a lot of white collar stuff. Yeah, so, for sure. A lot yeah, of white collar defense. So he probably, you know, uh, I mean, he, he definitely clerked for a federal court uh, after law school. He went to Yale. I mean, oh, like, he, finished, yeah. he had to finish in the, together. Yeah. If you finish in the top half of your class at Yale, you can get a federal clerkship anywhere. Uh, it's just a matter of how good a one. It's like, oh no, I've got to go to Montana. It's like, oh <laughs> well, tough shit. Uh, no, I think he you know, smart and then just, you know, went into private practice as a criminal defense and became, you know, one of the more real characters in there. Kind of being like, yeah, no, this is a lot of. I mean, this is just a gimmick. It's everyone on a hustle here, so you just got to do your part here and and uh, <laughs> don't say anything. <laughs> like, please God, just don't say anything. <laughs> Yeah, that's his like one piece of advice is just shut up to Tom Hanks, basically the whole movie. Uh, Jed Kramer is our next one, uh, played by your favorite, Saul Rubinek. Went to uh, City College, went to City College, went to- <laughs> Does he like, mention that in the movie or is that just- No, your... no, okay. I'm just, that's just my feel. You know, he, okay. he's a New Yorker through and through, went to City College or some shit, went to like, you know, a public law school in New York. And, uh, you know, he graduated and- you know, uh, realized, hey, my hustle here in the community is to work for the state, you know, work for the prosecutor's office. I can do that. And uh, I can grease a lot of wheels, uh, you know, probably part of a, I mean, obviously part of a political machine. He understands how New York yeah, works. He, he definitely is a guy that uh, understands and maybe relishes in the fact that he's going to have to do some unsavory things to get up in the DA's office and in the, well, in the New York and, scene. And he, he's a, you know, he's a classic big city New Yorker art type where it's like, they don't give a shit about that. It's just like, all right, well, I just got to get the next thing. Move on, move on, move on, you know, get one up on whoever else he's competing with and uh, climb the ladder, get more graft, get more political capital. That's just the way it is. Next. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then our last one that we, or no, I'm sorry, second to last one we have Abe Weiss, the DA, which I think uh, one, he was probably a little bit like, our first one, Albert Fox, went to law school way, way back in the day. But he was a little different where, uh, in my opinion, Albert Fox was like a guy looking to like make the most money. And like, I don't care what I'm doing because he's doing like personal injury and like, you know, he's played as more of an ambulance chaser where Abe Weiss was much more about the appearance and the pomp and circumstance. Like he wants to be a DA and he wants to be a, a champion of the people but he doesn't want to do that because he believes in the causes. He just wants to do it because he wants to be that person. He wants everyone to yeah. look at him. Well, and he's a classic, uh, he's a classic yuppie caricature in that like he kind of came or at least went through either undergrad or law school or both during like Vietnam and the civil rights yeah. movement during like that great movement. So like, you know, like at one point in his youth, you know, he was, you know, playing guitar and had long hair and uh, smoking weed and talking Hanging about with Abby you know, Hoffman. Exactly. Talking about, you know, positive levitation and like shit like that. And then, uh, you know, that mid to late seventies hit and he's just like, Oh, I just got to get a job and sell out and go into politics. And, uh, you know what? He's done pretty good for himself. Come in DA in New York. That ain't uh, that ain't easy. Good Lord. The amount of the number of like throats he had to step on to get to where he is. Like, I mean, it's, uh, 
So then our very last one, which this one, I, I, we can say, I guess you could say what you think he would be like in law school, but we actually have a person that this was made off of. And that's Leonard White, uh, played by Morgan Freeman, the judge in this case. So I don't know if you have any thoughts, but I can go into who he was actually based off of as well. Well, at the risk of showing my ass any more than I already have tonight, how about I'll defer to you. I'm kind of curious. I, I knew it was based on a character, but I didn't know the real backstory on that. So he was based on this well-known judge back in the day, Burton B. Roberts. Solid name. Uh, he graduated from NYU with his undergrad in 1943, uh, went into the U.S. Army, fought in World War II, came back, then went to NYU Law and graduated in 1949, got his Master's of Law from Cornell in 1953. Uh, he was a, the Bronx District Attorney. Then he became the judge. Then he became the chief administrative judge for the New York Supreme Court in the Bronx until he retired in 1998. So after 25 years, he was known as just like a no-nonsense prosecutor and a no-nonsense judge. And uh, Tom Wolf said that he was, he, I think he like met and interviewed him. He was mm -hmm. very inspired by him and made him the model of like the one like person who's not out for themselves in his book. So he, uh, he said he wrote, I should say, he's one of the few sympathetic characters that was written in the book, one who could not be swayed by prosecutors or the press. Um, he called him one of the great figures in New York. He, hmm. So he was, uh, he actually started in Manhattan and then chose to be, go to the Bronx. So that was one of the other reasons was he went to the Bronx in the, in the 60s. So he was seen as a guy who did it out of, you know, actual intent to help rather than his own personal image. Uh, he said he was elected to a 14 year as a Supreme Court justice in 1973 with multi-partisan support and would rule his courtroom with an iron fist using a stentorian choice voice to chide prosecutors, defense attorneys, and even witnesses, as he saw. Uh, he presided over the famous Happy Land fire, which I don't know if you know, I actually looked up the case. It was a case where someone set fire to an illegal club and it only had one door in and one door out. So oh. basically everyone died inside because of it. Uh, and he like just railed on like the owners of it. Um, the arsonist got put in 25 years in jail. He, he, he pointed out, you've been visited by like the fire code. You never did anything. Um, he's like, he's like, look, the, you can blame the guy who lit the fire, but you're also to blame like to the owners. So he was no, he said no emotions to run amok in my court. He was very, just no nonsense by the book. Um, he would interrupt lawyers, uh, or witnesses in the middle of them talking. If he felt that they were rambling or not on point, uh, he oversaw, uh, negotiations for the families of the Happy Land fire, which led to $15.8 million in settlements in, in the 90s, so a lot more now. Uh, he also, um, he opposed mandatory sentencing. He was like pretty early to that. He, uh, he opposed mandatory sentencing. He opposed the death penalty, which like was not a popular stance back in the day to do so. Uh, he spoke out against public, or not public, political interference. Um, he said that, uh, oh, he, he spoke out against like different bail issues and, uh, 
he actually had some press back and forth with uh, now disgraced lawyer Rudy Giuliani. And um, after all that, he retired. And then he was actually chosen to be the administrative judge, which he did until 98 and then retired. So seems like a guy that actually was about that shit as compared to some guy who was just out for himself. Oh, well, very cool. I mean, like, shit, man. Very compelling character. Tom Wolf, uh, you know, he's got an eye for it. Just unfortunate that didn't translate to this fucking movie. <laughs> yes. So moving into our final thoughts on the movie. As I mentioned, this movie had a lot of production issues when it was um, being made. Uh, one of the most notable ones was uh, there was a scene where Melanie Griffith arrives uh, in New York on a plane and the second unit director calculated the time and day when the runway at JFK would line up exactly with the setting sun to serve as the backdrop. He managed to film it in a single 30-second time period when this occurs uh, in once every year, He, while winning a bet that he could make the scene an essential part of the movie with someone else on the crew. That five-camera shot cost $80,000, and it was cut down to just 10 seconds in the final cut of the movie. So that comes out to what? $8,000 a second. Basically. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Hell of, hell of a, hell of a shot. I don't remember. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then they, they also spent basically the same amount of money to do a 24 hour time-lapse, which you may remember is the very beginning of the movie and it's just the shot of the gargoyle looking over New York City and it just time lapses and they're like why why is that needed in this movie yeah that was still a cool shot though <laughs> uh, sure. that was a cool shot uh it was a good opener and also uh, the two towers are in the background i was just uh you know came on and i immediately did leo dicaprio gif being like go go <laughs> it's like yeah uh yeah well, yeah we've been conditioned to believe it's like whenever you watch a new york movie you always are on the lookout for it you know <laughs> uh I, I don't know uh, uh i have some questions that i want to ask about some original casting and some original um script writing that if would have have at all improved your score on the movie okay Hit let's me. go let's go with the original script first the original okay. script ended with the victim just getting up, walking out of the hospital and saying, this was all made up. It did not test well with audiences. Yeah, it's... Uh, it could be effective in the right hands, but yeah, probably even... That would actually, given... You know, it'd be worse. It would somehow be worse. It'd be worse, worse. It'd be yeah. worse. yeah. Um, Peter Fallow, obviously played by Bruce Willis in this movie. It was actually a... Um, studio decision they forced De Palma to uh cast him basically because he had been in Die Hard so they saw him as a big get for people to the theaters he originally offered the role to uh, first John Cleese because in the book hmm. um he's British yeah in the book he's from England so I was like okay that kind of makes sense I don't know how old John Cleese would have been because obviously Bruce Willis was pretty young in this ah, role well- Police was young enough to pull. I mean, he obviously wouldn't be. As yeah, young he as just would have been a, at a different stage. He's, I think, a bit older than Willis. Um, Police would have done better. That's a that's a miss. That that would have been. That would have I been think he would have been more adept at the the style of comedy in this movie that they should have gone for. Um, 
This other one that he offered it to was Jack Nicholson. Nah, no, <laughs> no, that, that would have, oh God, then it would have, the movie really would have been just about Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Uh, I would have like it would have been like more. I just like with his voice, it would have felt more like a detective movie or something. To me. Yeah, it would have gotten more noiry, right? Yeah. And it just wouldn't have been a good fit. Uh, okay. So when the project was first in development, it actually wasn't De Palma who was going to direct it. It was originally going to be Mike Nichols, and he wanted rather than Tom Hanks, he wanted uh Steve Martin to play Sherman McCoy. I think which, Martin would have done a better job. I was like. That could work because Steve Martin in the 80s was the yuppie, like straight mm-hmm. man. Yeah. No, he he would play that straighter and less goofy. That might have made this movie work a lot better. Wow. Uh, the studio rejected that because they thought that Steve Martin was too old. Okay. I, I feel bad for Steve Martin because I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that he's had white hair since he was like 14. So he's just yeah. always looked old. Yeah. I, I was going to joke. He's been, he's had white hair since his twenties, but fuck that might, that <laughs> makes sense. Uh, however, uh, it helps him in the long term, and it doesn't really show any age. You know, it's yeah. like, no, it's already there. Like, uh, okay. Then the next person that they wanted was Chevy chase. Terrible move. I'm gonna Terrible. say no on that one. Just, <laughs> no, he 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 actually would have made this movie somehow worse. I I, I God, and I love Chevy Chase in small but doses. I will say, the book that was written about how bad this production was. If Chevy Chase would have been, uh, in this movie, that book would have been just like a thousand times like more like, uh, hostile and like, uh, just you know, crazy from all that shit that you hear that like Chevy Chase did to some of his like co-workers basically. Oh, for sure. For sure. All right. Uh, we got three more that were all considered for McCoy. First, Kevin Costner. Nah. So. He's nah. Too, he, he strikes me more as like a rugged guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this one was interesting to me because I feel like he would have been pretty young to play this one, but Tom Cruise at this point, I think he would have been pretty young. Too young, too, too, yeah. The, and his kind of earnest handsomeness just wouldn't have fit with this gimmick. It just would have mm-hmm. been, that's a bad clash. Uh, and then the last one, which I think it would have worked, but it would have been much more dramatic, uh, which potentially could have worked. Christopher Reeve. I I mean, I haven't seen many Christopher Reeve's movies other than Superman, if I'm being <laughs> honest. Uh, he doesn't strike me as an actor who had a lot of range. That's why I think it would have been more of like a dramatic type of playing of it yeah. rather than like the like satirical yuppie. Well, then, yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, it, it, it's it, at this right. point. At this point, you're just rearranging uh, chairs on the <laughs> on exactly. the Titanic. <laughs> All right. So the judge now had a couple people as well, okay. rather than okay. Morgan Freeman. Uh, initially, it was offered to Walter Matthau. That could have worked. Yeah. Could have worked. But he demanded a fee of a million dollars. And so the studio said, uh, no. Jesus, Walter, how much does old Milwaukee cost back in 1990? Come on, man. So then uh before Morgan Freeman, they signed for 150,000 Alan Arkin. He would have been great. 
Yeah. He would have been great. He would have been yeah. great. I think Alan Arkin can play almost any role. Uh, honestly, he could probably play almost all of these roles better than the people they cast. I, that, that'd be a great pick. And they didn't consider this, but I, when I was reading that, I was like, I would have loved to see Alan Arkin as like the DA. I thought he would have been funny there too. I mean, not that F. Murray Abraham was bad, but I think he would have been really good in that part. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay, then the person they never offered it, but he was considered, was Edward James Olmos. Uh, I just uh, think it was like a quick consideration they had because I don't see it fitting. I love Edward James almost. I think he's awesome. Um, but yeah, they and it did say that they cast Morgan Freeman to, in their eyes, have some better racial view of the movie, which I was like, okay, Jesus Christ. But uh, gotta love those uh, late 80s, early 90s optics, man. They're um, really thinking ahead. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then the last one. Brian De Palma, uh, for the part of Maria Ruskin, wanted that instead to go to Uma Thurman. Whoa. She even she even like tested and like did like screen stuff for the role. She would have been awfully young, but pretty young. But I think it would have been better. Oh, absolutely. Melanie Griffin sucks. But do you know who uh, changed his mind? Terry Gilliam, Tom Hanks himself said she's oh. not right for the for the role, and eventually, then Melanie Griffith got cast instead. Which I was like, hmm. Well, way to fucking go, American Treasure, <laughs> Tom Hanks. God, God, uh, you may be charming, but you got shit for brains, buddy. Ugh. Yeah. So uh, that was just some some fun production notes. I mean, my final thoughts on the movie. I've already. I've already said a lot. It's it's not good. And it's it's not one of those movies that's so bad that it's good. Like God's Not Dead 2, while being one of the worst movies that I've ever seen, was fun to watch because of how insanely just bananas bad it was. Like yeah, this, this movie was just like I it was just like I said, it's like you have all these good things. Why is you're mad? You're like, why is this not good? Well, and it's not even like cult, it's not even so bad that it should deserves its own cult following like the room yeah. for example like that yeah. movie is that movie is terrible but it's fun to watch this that train wreck this mm -hmm. train wreck however has everyone you'd ever want in a movie it's got one of the greatest directors who's ever lived it, it, it's got all sorts of resources and it, and it looks it it just doesn't know what it's doing and it's yep. it seems like everyone is in their own movie and they're acting it their own way for what they think it is uh and you're trying to uh, build a, a narrative, cohesive, linear cinematographic structure for uh, uh, you know subject matter that is very nuanced and very like satirical and incisive, but also very you know I, it's just Christ, man. Like, this is like I don't think the world knows enough about how bad this movie is. I think this should be like taught not just in film school about what not to do, but like, I don't know, like civics class, like guys, like, like this is, well, I, this I is the worst that our democracy has done. Like <laughs> this is, this is a stain on the American flag. Uh, and, I think uh, it could be shown in like film courses, like you mentioned for like, Hey, don't worry if like what you do, you feel is not good enough because look at this. There was an amazing actors, great source material, a great director, 
and it still ended up being like a pile of shit. Yeah. So you might have missteps. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's all I have to say. The movie, uh, while I do not like to promote piracy, it is for free on YouTube. It's just posted for free on YouTube, which I think for good reason. I think the studio has been like, we're not going to dispute it. It just. Yep. Eh, whatever. If they want to watch it, go watch it. Literally not worth the like two grand and attorney's fees it'll cost us to try <laughs> to enforce anything. Like, fuck it. Have at it, YouTube. It's your curse now. Yeah. So, yes, I would say don't waste your time because uh, it's just, it's not going to please you on any level. So, from Spencer yeah. and myself, remember never talk to the cops, never go to law school, and none of this is legal advice. And straight. Listen, homeboys, don't mean to bust your bubble, but girls of the world ain't nothing but trouble. So next time a girl gives you the play, just remember my rhymes and get the hell away. Just last week when I was walking down the street, I observed this lovely lady that I wanted to meet. I walked up to her, I said hello. She said, hey, you're kind of cute. I said, yes, I know, but by the way, sweetheart, what's your name? She said, my friends like to call me Exotic Elaine. I said, my name is The Prince. But she said, why? I said, well, I don't know. I'm just a hell of a guy. But enough about me. Yo, let's talk about you and all the wonderful things that you and I can do. I popped some cash in a little bit of time. I showed some cash, then the girl was mine. I took her on the town. I wined her and dined her. She asked me, did I like her? I said, well, kind of. All of a sudden, she jumped out of seat, snatched me up by my wrist, and took me out in the street. She started grabbing all over me, kissing and hugging, so I shoved her away. I said, you better stop bugging. She got mad, looked me dead in my face, threw her hands in the air and yelled out. I got scared when she started to yell, so I handed her my wallet and ran like hell. I was ducking through alleys, right and left, but when the cops caught up, they almost beat me to death. I was arrested, charged with aggravated assault. But it wasn't my fault. Well, nevertheless, don't mean to bust your bubble, but girls of the world ain't nothing but trouble.